Welcome to a very special edition of the Weekly Appellate Report, streaming to and programmed specifically for attendees of the Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles Labor Day Convention in Las Vegas, Nevada. Over the next hour, assuming you're able to break away long enough from the wide variety of diversions that you're doubtless encountering in America's playground, you'll hear incisive commentary from California practitioners on three recent California Supreme Court cases of particular importance to plaintiff-side trial attorneys, one regarding the arbitrability of class disputes, another the tort liability of raw material suppliers notwithstanding the sophisticated intermediary defense, and finally, a most vital question for Cala conventioneers, how much and in what manner plaintiff attorneys can recover fees in common fund class actions. Each of the following three segments appeared previously on the weekly version of our show, which airs each Friday and regards a range of salient appellate issues. If you like what you hear today, I hope you'll consider tuning in to our regular weekly program. For now, on with today's special Kala edition. We'll hear first from Rex Heinke, a partner with Aiken Gump, who joined the show a couple of weeks ago to discuss the case of Sanquist v. Lebo Automotive, in which the state high court addressed a massively important employment law question, namely, where an employment contract is ambiguous, who should decide the question of whether class claims may be arbitrated, the court or the arbitrator. In the 4-3 split, it's first in over a year, the court decided that according to principles of state contract law, that question, at least in this case, should go to the arbitrator. Justice Leandra Kruger penned the three-justice minority and noted that the majority's decision is contrary to ones issued by other state and federal courts and likely awaits a reversal at the hands of the country's high court. Then, Don Willenberg, a partner at Gordon and Reese, We'll discuss raw material tort liability in the aftermath of Webb for Special Electric Company, a Cal Supreme Court ruling filed in May, which was the very first time the state high court had wrestled specifically with the sophisticated intermediary defense. There, a raw materials broker had arranged an asbestos deal of a variety of asbestos that had an atypically high potential for harm. Well further down the supply chain, the plaintiff contacted that asbestos and, after developing mesothelioma decades later, sued that original broker. Arguing its liability had been discharged by the various intervening and knowledgeable purchasers of the raw asbestos, the defendants earned a bench judgment notwithstanding a plaintiff verdict, but they were less successful before the Supreme Court, which reinstated that original verdict and sounded a clear warning to dangerous raw material suppliers and their attorneys that substantial efforts must be made to warn even sophisticated intermediary purchasers. Finally, Glenn Danis and Ryan Wu of Capstone Law APC will join to chat about Lafitte vs. Robert Half International, a ruling from August that clarified that class action plaintiffs can recover Attorney's fees is a set proportion of a common fund settlement. There, plaintiff attorneys settled an employment matter for $19 million and received a court-approved one-third of that amount, roughly $6.3 million. A class member objected, arguing that a 1977 California Supreme Court ruling precluded such percentage-based recoveries, but to no avail. The state high court determined that percentage-based compensation in common fund class actions is not precluded by that prior ruling. And we know that 20 total CLE credits are available to you at the Kala Convention, but if for some reason that's not quite enough, or perhaps, as can happen in Las Vegas, you oversleep and find yourself having missed a presentation and its accompanying CLE credit, well, we at the Daily Journal have you covered. Just for listening to this podcast and completing a short true-false test you can find on our site, you'll receive one CLE credit. It's as simple as laying down your chips at the roulette wheel on red. Wait, no, black. 
And with that, let's hear from our first guest, Mr. Rex Heike, discussing the recent Cal Supreme Court ruling in the case of Sanquist vs. Lebo Automotive. Hope you enjoy the show and your weekend in Las Vegas. We're very happy to be joined once again by Rex Heinke. Mr. Heinke is a partner at Aiken Gump and is the co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and appellate practice. Mr. Heinke, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. So we're chatting today about the California Supreme Court case of Sanquist v. Lebo Automotive decided a few weeks ago in July in a very important ruling for employment law and issues of arbitration, and specifically class arbitration. The plaintiff here, Mr. Sanquist, had been an employee at at a car dealership and had worked there for several years, but after he quit or was sort of forced out, he brought race discrimination claims against the, the dealership. And I believe that his individual claims were compelled to arbitration, but the trial court dismissed his, his class claims. But after that, I believe the, the appellate court said that the trial court perhaps should not have decided that question as to whether the class should have been certified, that perhaps it should have actually been been the arbitrator. Um, so now tell me what exactly the, the Supreme Court was deciding then. Is that that exact question, who should have made that decision? Yes, the Supreme Court was deciding who should decide, a court or an arbitrator, whether an arbitration agreement provided for class-wide arbitration. Okay, so as between the court and, and the arbitrator, what um, before we get to what the Supreme Court said on that question, could you tell me why it's such an important question to begin with? Obviously, many millions of dollars have been poured into this litigation over several years. So um, you know, why, why is it such a big deal? Who decides this question? Well, I think the reason that uh, employers, <clears throat> uh, and this would apply also to uh, companies that provide consumer products and so on, the reason they're concerned about an arbitrator deciding whether the arbitration agreement provides for class-wide arbitration is because of the lack of review of decisions by arbitrators. Essentially, a decision by an arbitrator is virtually unreviewable. Now, like everything, there are a few exceptions, but unless the arbitrator basically says, I know this is the law and I'm not going to follow it, you're not going to be able to ordinarily reverse the arbitrator's decision on appeal. Uh, in contrast, a decision by a judge is going to be subject to uh, review, de novo review, if the issue is legal, uh, substantial evidence review, if it's just a question of what evidence there is in the record. So I think the real problem that people see is the lack of review of an arbitrator's decision. Then with that setup, could you tell me what the Supreme Court ruled as to who should make the decision in this case? What the Supreme Court said was um, this decision should go to the arbitrator. It shouldn't be made by the court because there was a broad provision in the arbitration agreement that essentially said, all claims related to employment at this automotive dealership should be decided by arbitration. The clause made no reference expressly to class-wide arbitration. It neither said that it should happen or shouldn't happen. But the court interpreted that broad clause to provide for class-wide or to provide that the issue of class-wide arbitration should go to the arbitrator. And in so doing, upheld the, the second appellate district's ruling. I know there's, from reading the filings and some of the coverage, there's a, a big point of contention over whether this, this question, who should decide class certification, the arbitrator or the trial court, 
um, whether that's a, a procedural question or a, a threshold one. Uh, could you describe to me what the distinction is between the two types of questions and, and why does that matter so much for the legal analysis here? Sure. Sometimes the question is phrased as whether this is a gateway issue or not. Uh, gateway issues are issues that the courts are supposed to decide. Examples of that are whether the uh, an arbitration agreement is enforceable in the first instance and what issues are covered by the arbitration agreement. Um, so those issues really go to is there an arbitration agreement? Other issues that are deemed procedural go to how the arbitration is going to proceed. Those issues are deemed for the arbitrator. The gateway issues are deemed to be ones for the court. Okay, so then if this was determined to be a procedural question, obviously that would tend to, to fall more in the purview of an arbitrator rather than the court. Right, subject to the broad rule that arbitration is a matter of contract and of course the parties can contract for the issue of class-wide arbitration to be decided by a court or an arbitrator as they choose the issue here was what if the arbitrator arbitration agreement excuse me says nothing express about class-wide arbitrations who decides whether class-wide arbitrations are permissible, and the court said uh, that's generally going to the arbitrator. Okay, then that ruling has been described as quite favorable to, to employee plaintiffs like Mr. Sanquist here. Do you read it that way as being particularly favorable? And if so, why, why do you say that? Because employers have generally tended to champion arbitration, and you certainly try to include arbitration clauses and in, in employment contracts. So it would seem that you know, more power going to an arbitrator or the tendency to, to push things into arbitration and out of the courts would be something that employers would generally be okay with speaking sort of broadly. Well, I think the decision certainly is favorable to plaintiffs who want class-wide arbitration, that issue to be decided by arbitrators, because it basically creates a default rule that unless the agreement expressly says no arbitration, or sorry, no arbitration of class-wide issues, then ordinarily that issue is going to go to the arbitrator. Why do employers or consumer companies care about this? You're certainly right that they often favor arbitration, but in the past when they favored arbitration, it has always been in the context of individual claims which usually, uh, admittedly, are there exceptions, but usually are not large claims. And so the employers were happy to have those claims decided in a way that they thought would be quick, efficient, and not expensive. So they were happy to go to arbitration. Their concern is that with class-wide arbitration, the arbitration will no longer be quick, efficient, or inexpensive, and coupled with the concern that those decisions by an arbitrator will be uh, essentially unreviewable, they are not happy to have this issue go to arbitrators. Sure. I think that the plaintiff here, and maybe employment plaintiffs generally, and, and Amici in this case have stuck on to that perhaps inconsistency where employers might tend to favor individual arbitration, but then say it's not particularly well suited for class claims. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a fair criticism to be made? Is there any true disingenuous there that 
you know, employers like arbitration, except when it, you know, there's greater amounts of money at stake and they might stand to lose more? Or you know, are those two stances reconcilable? Well, I think it's certainly true that generally employers have not been happy to see very large claims, which is usually what a class-wide claim is, go to arbitrators for fear that they cannot get any kind of effective review of the decision, and therefore they're wholly at the mercy of the arbitrator. That may be good, it may be bad, it might even be indifferent, but when it's bad, there's nothing that can be done about it. Uh, the other thing is certainly a big reason that employers have favored individual arbitrations is because it's pretty quick, pretty cheap, pretty efficient. Class-wide arbitrations are not going to be any of those things. And so the things that employers thought they were getting, the advantages of arbitration, individual arbitration, go out the window if there's class-wide arbitration. Maybe burrowing in a little bit more deeply to simply the, the legal reasoning applied by the majority here, it seems relatively straightforward and somewhat persuasive. To me, as you've touched on a bit, the majority says, you know, in a contract like this where there's no clear language saying who makes the class certification decision, and also in a, a contract like this where there's a clause saying that generally any disputes and questions will be resolved by an arbitrator, and they say, well, okay, this is a, a question, this is a dispute whether the class should be certified, that should go to the arbitrator. Um, this is a 4-3 decision, so three justices were not persuaded by that logic. Do you find the logic of the majority opinion persuasive? Uh, no, I don't. I think one thing that should be recognized here is the view of the majority is the minority view in the courts. Every federal circuit court has come down the opposite way. Um, so that that alone should give one pause as to whether or not the majority is correct here. The question of who decides it comes down to what you think the role of the courts and arbitrators is here. The part of the rules that seems fairly clear is that courts decide whether something is arbitrable. That is, is the arbitration agreement enforceable? Because obviously, if it's not enforceable, then you can't compel somebody to arbitrate. And what issues or disputes are covered by the arbitration agreement? Because again, arbitration is simply a matter of contract. You could contract and say uh, disputes from us between us about contracts are arbitrable, but decisions about tort claims are not arbitrable, for example. And then whether a particular dispute fell in one category or the other would be up to the courts. It seems to me that the question of class-wide arbitration falls in the second category. That is, what does the arbitration agreement cover? What disputes? And here in particular, does it cover class-wide arbitration? Sure. For those two objections, generally the, the body of the dissent here, I believe it was written by Justice Leandra Kruger. I, I think she did mention the point that you make that other courts, federal courts and state courts have held differently than the California court here. Is that largely the objections that she raised as well? Well, she certainly raised that objection. Um, there are a couple other things her dissent said. One is there's a U.S. Supreme Court case called Green Tree. And in that case, a plurality of four justices held that whether an arbitration agreement provides for class-wide arbitration is for the arbitrator. 
Uh, her point was that if you looked at more recent Supreme Court cases, the, the uh, majority view no longer was the view taken in Green Tree. Uh, she pointed to two Supreme Court cases in particular. One is called Stolt-Nielsen. In that case, the question before the U.S. Supreme Court was whether an arbitration agreement that says nothing about class-wide arbitration can be presumed to provide for class-wide arbitration. And there the Supreme Court said uh, quite clearly that unless there was a provision that provided for class-wide arbitration in the arbitration agreement, then without that, there could be no class-wide arbitration. And as part of that analysis, the court pointed to the fact that class-wide arbitration dramatically increased the risk to defendants. And so it followed from that, that if you're going to have parties go to class-wide arbitration, and if arbitration is simply a matter of contract, then the parties have to agree to it, and silence wasn't an agreement. She also pointed to the Supreme Court's case, Concepcion, and that case said some of the things I've been saying, which is that the principal advantages of arbitration are that it's fast, less costly, and less formal, but that class-wide arbitration was just the opposite. It was slow, it was more costly, and more formal. And therefore, she looked at those cases and said she doubted that parties would ever agree to class arbitration implicitly as distinct from explicitly, because it's clear the parties want class-wide arbitration. They can agree to that, and that's fine. So the question here really is, well, what if the parties don't say what they want? How do you interpret the agreement when there's no express reference to class-wide arbitrations? Okay, maybe a, a question more generally about the split here. It's four to three, which is the first time there's been such a split like that in the California Supreme Court since January of last year. I know the court is known for trying when it can to render unanimous decisions. So were you surprised at all to, to see that split? Is there anything to be read into it except the fact that this is just a, a pretty divisive issue? Well, I don't think I'd read anything into it other than it's an issue that has uh, divided the court's considerably. Sure. I don't think it uh, portends that the court, the California Supreme Court is going to have more 4-3 decisions or anything like that. So I don't think you, you can read too much into it. You're certainly right that the California Supreme Court um, is much, <laughs> there's much more unanimity or close to un unanimity than you see in the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think the lineup here is kind of interesting of the justices because the author of the dissent um, had generally been regarded as uh, a liberal. And I think most people would say that the majority decision was the liberal decision, not the dissent. Yeah, I was surprised to see her name above the dissent in this case. It well, I think that the way it can be explained is she's simply looking at what the U.S. Supreme Court has said and is saying, look, this is the way this is going to come out, whatever we might or might not like about it. You know, there's been a continuing um, disagreement between the U.S. Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court about arbitration. And this is just another example 
of it, where the California Supreme Court has taken a view that I think is considerably contrary to the view of the U.S. Supreme Court. I temper that with the fact that with Justice Scalia's death and the court being very split 4-4, we don't really know how it's going to come out. But setting that aside up until now, the U.S. Supreme Court has been very pro-arbitration and very contrary to what California has tried to do. Sure. Maybe spinning off that a bit, I think one case that helps illustrate that point was from a few years ago, Direct TV versus Imbergia. I think there, there was a contract by DirecTV that would, in which folks would, would waive class arbitration altogether, and the California Supreme Court struck down that contract provision as against California state law. But then, as you say, the Supreme Court disagreed and, and said the Federal Arbitration Act preempts California state law and allows a class arbitration waiver. So as you say, this is sort of the next chapter in this continuing bit of tension between the California High Court and the country's High Court? Yes. Um, you know, if you look back at earlier cases like uh, Gentry, for example, and the cases, its progeny there, what the California Supreme Court said essentially was that class, waivers of class-wide arbitration were unconscionable under California law. And the U.S. Supreme Court in Concepcion said, no, you can't have a blanket rule that says all waivers of class-wide arbitrations are unconscionable because that defeats the policy of the Federal Arbitration Act. And that policy is to favor arbitrations and to preempt state rules that discriminated against arbitration. And there have been several other cases like that where the California Supreme Court has gone one way and the U.S. Supreme Court has overruled it. So this is just another step in that continuing disagreement over how arbitration should work. Okay. Then perhaps are we, again, waiting for the other shoe to drop here? Do you think this case will follow a, a similar type trajectory where the Supreme Court will take it and reverse it as it has in, in the past? I know you said there's some uncertainty because we're not sure still who the, the ninth justice will be and when he or she might join the court. Well, I think in ordinary times when the U.S. Supreme Court was fully staffed, I would think this case was a very likely candidate for certiorari. It's an important issue. And there's a clear disagreement about the issue, and it's a legal issue which only the U.S. Supreme Court can definitively resolve. So I would have thought ordinarily that this would be a prime candidate, not a guaranteed candidate for cert, but a prime candidate, not guaranteed because uh, so much of the case law is the other way, but likely now, there's the additional overlay here of the court being 4-4. I think it's going to be reluctant to take on cases where it thinks that a particular case would be decided 4-4, which is to say they wouldn't decide anything because it would be affirmed, the lower court's decision would be affirmed by an equally divided Supreme Court, leaving the issue still up in the air. So... That may well be a reason that the Supreme Court at this stage will not take this issue, but it is certainly going to take up this issue at some point. Um, as you say, this is a big case and a big issue. I'd be curious to know, um, in terms of the impact for em employer defendants here, um, is the impact truly so significant, this ruling here? I mean, can't employers now just drop contracts that 
are not ambiguous as to this point about class arbitration that say a court must decide issues of class arbitration. And so this ruling would not be necessarily that impactful. Well, you're certainly right. The solution to this problem is to write arbitration agreements that squarely say either class-wide arbitration is allowed or class-wide arbitration isn't allowed. And this decision is going to uh, strongly encourage people who are drafting these agreements to make an express provision about this. But all that is going to do is solve the question prospectively. What it doesn't do is anything uh, retrospectively for all existing arbitration agreements. Uh, there's still the issue as to those, what or how they should be interpreted, and they're not going to be affected by later amendments or revisions. I see. So all the ones out there that, that do have the same ambiguity would be subject to similar... Right. And I think what you're going to find is if you look at most arbitration agreements, unless they were written very recently, they don't expressly say anything about class-wide arbitration. You know, no one has thought of even having a class-wide arbitration until, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe less than that, when this started becoming an issue. But up till then, no one had ever heard of a class-wide arbitration. And so the agreements, not surprisingly, didn't make any provision for that. It's never occurred to anybody that there could be a class-wide arbitration. Sure. Um, in your opinion, was, was this ruling a bit of a surprise at all, considering the fact that, as you say, many other courts that have tackled this question have felt the exact opposite? I would have predicted that this case would come out the way it did because the California Supreme Court um, has... Uh, not been at all comfortable with the waiver of class-wide arbitrations. You know, lots of employers, consumer companies, and so on have put provisions in their arbitration agreements that say class-wide arbitration um, is prohibited. Uh, but as I said before, a lot of agreements are out of date. They didn't think of that when they were being drafted. And so this issues, you know, an open question on so many of those agreements. And the California Supreme Court has been very hostile to agreements that waive class-wide arbitration. This, I think, is another uh, symptom of that. There's also the interesting question of, well, okay, let's assume it goes to arbitrators. Are they going to be hostile or favorably disposed to interpreting an agreement to provide for class-wide arbitration? A lot of people believe, um, hard to know empirically, but a lot of people believe that arbitrators are going to be prone to find class-wide arbitration because it's in their economic self-interest to do so. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the difference between uh quick and simple and cheap individual arbitration and a, a massive and expensive class arbitration case would make a big difference in terms of how much that, that mediator got paid. That's, that's, that's for sure. Right. Okay. Then, so Sandquist here pending the decision, like you say, this case may go forward, but for employment lawyers more generally, what are the most significant impacts now that Sandquist has been ruled upon by the, the state high court? Well, I think the most important impact is when you write your arbitration agreement, make it clear what 
is being provided as to class-wide arbitrations, because as you suggested before, on a prospective basis, that is going to eliminate the issue. Doesn't It's not going to really matter who decides it if you write a clear provision that says class-wide arbitration is provided for or it is not allowed. So that's the most important thing that can be done going forward is to resolve this by clear and express language. As to the existing agreements, there are going to be continuing fights about how do you interpret ambiguous agreements and just how much of an indication is needed that class-wide arbitration is permissible before a judge or arbitrator can find that class-wide arbitration should be ordered. Okay. Well, certainly a very fascinating issue and one that's of great importance for employment lawyers. Mr. Rex Heinke, thanks very much for being on the podcast to discuss it with us. I appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks so much. Once more, that was Rex Heinke of Aiken Gump chatting about Sanquist first Lebo Automotive. We'll move now to my discussion with Don Willenberg on the case of Webb v. Special Electric and the sophisticated intermediary defense. Happy to welcome now Don Willenberg. Mr. Willenberg is a partner at Gordon Reese, and his particular practice areas include environmental and toxic torts, appellate law, insurance, and green technology and climate change. Mr. Willenberg is a regular contributor of columns and commentary to the Daily Journal. Mr. Willenberg, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So we're talking about Webb versus Special Electric Company, a case filed out of the California Supreme Court on Monday, and one that deals with the tort liability of suppliers of raw materials, and something that I believe was an issue of first impression, the sophisticated intermediary defense. Is that right? Well, that's, that's right. The, uh, the case is about the sophisticated intermediary defense. It is the first one from the California Supreme Court to directly address that issue. Uh, but the issue is related to other things that the court has addressed. Okay. There's the cases about sophisticated user, Johnson versus American Standard, and there's cases about learned intermediaries. And this is, in some ways, a uh, confluence or middle ground between, between those two. Sure. And we'll get more into unpacking that in just a second. Let's go ahead and, and talk about a few of the underlying facts of this case. So the defendant here... And the defendant, Special Electric, it was a, a two-person outfit in Wisconsin that acted as a broker uh, for a certain kind of asbestos and uh, brokered that to, among others, Johns Manville, which is... The almost the, the the poster child of the asbestos industry. It was the largest asbestos supplier. It had made uh, many many uh, different kinds of asbestos products. It had it mined asbestos raw asbestos on its own. You mentioned that Special Electric helped broker a deal of a particular kind of asbestos, and there's some claim that this particular kind could be potentially much more hazardous than say the a generic run of the mill asbestos. Is that right? Well. The, I'm not sure what a generic run-of-the-mill asbestos is, but they, but it is true uh, that there are, are several different types of asbestos, and the one involved here, chrysidolite, is uh, is much rarer than the other kinds of asbestos that have been commercially used. 
uh, and it is also uh, significantly more toxic than the other kind than the other for mineral varieties of asbestos that were commercially used. Okay, so now Special Electric brokers this deal, the deal at issue here with Johns Manville, back in the 1970s, and at that time Johns Manville supplied, or they they had a plant in Long Beach that supplied a certain type of pipe to various distributors, including a plumbing supply store where the plaintiff here, William Webb, worked. Is that correct? Well, it was actually a, a, a step even in between that. Uh, Johns Manville made transite pipe at its facility. It sold to a supplier, which then sold to a supply house at which plaintiff worked. So, so the plaintiff is an employee of a customer of a customer of Johns Manville uh, and someone who presumably Special Electric would never have any knowledge of or way to get a hold of. Sure. So fair to say a fair number of links in the chain between Special Electric and the plaintiff here, William Webb. That there are there are more multiple links, that's for sure. Okay. Um, now at the time when Webb was working for the plumbing supply store where he was an employee, is handling this pipe that had some of the residual crock See, I'm sorry. Could you pronounce it one more time for me? Uh, it, it's chrysidolite. Actually, it was, there was there, it, the, the facts of this case are, are 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 we're not even sure whether he ever whether Mr. Webb ever encountered any chrysidolite that Special Electric uh, brokered. Okay. What we what we do know, and what the court says is, well, he was exposed to Johns Manville products that contain trace amounts of chrysidolite at roughly the same time that Special Electric was supplying chrysidolite. And uh, even the court said, well, evidence of this link could be stronger. I'll suggest, yes, that that is is not evidence of much of a link at all. But but that's the evidence that that they had in this case. Okay. Now, that notwithstanding, at the trial court level, the jury returns a verdict in favor of Webb. Uh, not just against Special Electric, there was multiple defendants, but I believe the tort liability assigned to Special Electric was something about around 20%, correct? Uh, I'm not remembering the exact percentage, I think but, it's 18, but yes, there were multiple. But then uh, I believe Special Electric moved for a, a non-suit. What happened then? Well, Special Electric moved for non-suit uh, at the close of plaintiff's case, so it's, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, not, it's before the verdict even comes in. And the trial court didn't rule on it at that time. The trial court waited for the, uh, the rest of the case to, to finish, finish being tried. It was tried. The jury entered its verdict. And then after the jury entered its verdict, the trial court decided to uh, now consider the motion for non-suit, but consider it and deem it a motion for judgment notwithstanding the verdict. And the trial court granted that motion. Okay. Uh, that is, I think that is very significant because that plays into how both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, how they, end, how they end up ruling. I think that it's possible that had there been a jury verdict in special electric's favor on these facts, that the court would have affirmed that. I see. Um, and we should probably expressly say, I'm not sure we mentioned it, uh, Mr. Webb was diagnosed with mesothelioma in 2011, and that's why he brought the suit in the first place. So now tell me what happened on appeal. Well, the Court of Appeal reversed uh, the 
the JNOV. The standard on, on a JNOV is that there can be no substantial evidence supporting the, uh, the verdict, uh, that it must be wrong as a matter of law. And both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court looked at this and decided, well, no, actually, the jury's verdict uh, finding that, that there was liability here it, it is supportable by law. And uh, the elements of the defense weren't adequately established in the evidence by, uh, by Special Electric. Okay. So that leads us to the the issue before the California Supreme Court is specifically that defense, the sophisticated intermediary defense, which I think helps determine whether or not a supplier's liability is cut off at a certain point before it reaches an end user who might be harmed by raw materials passed uh, along a chain of intermediaries. So could you lay out exactly what the sophisticated intermediary defense is? Sure. Well, the the... the court described the defense in the same way that the restatement does. And it says that a product supplier can discharge its duty to warn end users if it, one, provides adequate warnings to the product's immediate purchaser or sells to a sophisticated purchaser that it knows is aware or should be aware of the specific danger, and two, reasonably relies on the purchaser to convey appropriate warnings to the downstream users. Uh, I'll, I'll add that although that the court also said it's not just reasonably relies on the purchaser in that second uh, prong of the test, it's actually and reasonably relies. Um, now setting up that issue, go ahead and tell me where the court came down on this one. Well, the court adopted this defense. Uh, but found that it would not apply uh, in this case, on this evidence, and again, in this procedural posture. And perhaps the, the prime reason is one that we uh, adverted to before, and that is that although the record showed that Johns Manville was aware of the risks of asbestos in general, no evidence established that it knew about the particularly acute risks posed by chrysidolite. So that's that's that that's the that is the main reason why uh, it, it seems, or a a main reason why uh, the sophisticated intermediary defense didn't apply here. Okay, yeah, because like you say, Johns Manville sounds uh, you describe them as the poster boy for asbestos production or supply at the time. If there's a sophisticated user of asbestos, it sounds like it would be it would be them. But you say particularly because maybe they weren't aware of this particular kind of asbestos. Were there any other reasons why this sophisticated intermediary defense didn't hold water here? Well, right. There were, there were really uh, four other reasons that the court identified. One was that the evidence was disputed about whether Special Electric provided warnings to Johns Manville. Um, a response to that is, what warning could Special Electric ever have given to Johns Manville that Johns Manville didn't know? Uh, they knew as much or more about asbestos risks than just about anyone, uh, but it is, I guess we can go back to, again, there wasn't evidence about the specific uh, knowledge about chrysidolite. Uh, se a second reason was that uh, plaintiffs presented evidence that at least one Special Electric salesperson told customers that chrysidolite was actually safer than other asbestos. 
Um, and the court said that if the jury credited that evidence, it may have found it unreasonable for Special Electric to believe that Johns Manville was so sophisticated that they didn't need a warning about crocidolite. Um, a third reason I think is really that will uh, come up again in other cases, and that is difficult, is saying that the record did not establish that Special Electric actually and reasonably relied on Johns Manville to warn end users. And court recognizes that proof of actual reliance will be difficult to obtain, particularly in cases like this, where we're talking about a latent disease and the material was supplied decades ago. Uh, the court says, however, actual reliance is an inference the fact finder should be able to draw from circumstantial evidence about the party's dealings. Um, which I guess I might think, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, some of the circumstantial evidence that was present in this case might make you think there was actual reliance too. Let me see. I have a two-person shop in Wisconsin selling a product that they uh, import from South Africa to Johns Manville. Um, and, and Special Electric, by the way, never, never has possession of the, of the stuff either. Never touches it. It all goes from, from a mine to the uh, most sophisticated user of the mineral on the planet. I wanted to elaborate a bit more on that second prong or second step of the court's analysis of this defense. So first, either the defendant has to warn an intermediary or know that that intermediary already knows of the dangers it's going to warn it about. And then it must reasonably rely on the intermediary to subsequently warn um, further users down the chain. But it seems to me that Doctrinally, these steps cover some parts of the same ground. If a supplier knows that it's providing these products to a sufficiently sophisticated intermediary, it seems like they would necessarily be able to depend on that intermediary to warn downstream users, because otherwise, wouldn't they be exposed to very serious tort liability themselves, the intermediary? I think you're, you're absolutely right that there is some overlap here. Um, but there's, I guess I can think of two things to that. One is uh, whether or not you reasonably rely on it, there's also a requirement under this decision that you actually rely and that you, that you show some evidence that you actually relied on them to convey the warnings. And it is certainly uh, conceivable that there could be knowledgeable people who you shouldn't trust to give the warnings because you don't know whether they're going to give the warnings because... Uh, maybe they don't. In this, in this case, there was evidence uh, that Johns Manville did not warn its own employees about the hazards of asbestos. And as the Webb decision uh, noted, well, you could, you could extrapolate from that to think, well, if they don't warn their own employees, then why should I know that, that they're going to warn third-party uh, customers or the customers of customers, the employees, the end users of customers. Um, they're, even though you have the knowledge, maybe it is that you, that you aren't actually uh, giving it to someone else. I guess I could think of another example, uh, totally outside this frame, but uh, tobacco companies. Sure. Um, you may have been selling tobacco to a tobacco company that knew everything there was to know about health risks, but gosh, the tobacco companies were all doing their level best to hide those risks or obfuscate those risks. In a situation like that, you could hardly rely on the tobacco company to be the one extending, uh, extending the warning. Sure. Okay, now we touched on this a bit, 
the fact-intensive nature of the jury's findings here, the, the reasonableness of special electrics reliance and reason, reasonableness tests are obviously always pretty fact-intensive. And it seems like that was a decent part of the Cal Supreme Court's ruling that the jury did its job. It determined the issues of fact, made its decision, and, and that was a big reason why the court didn't want to overturn it and go the other way. So as you sort of hint, do you think if this had come down differently in the favor of special electric, it would have stayed that way? Well, I definitely think that had the jury looked at all the evidence and been presented with the sophisticated intermediary question on the verdict form and answered it in favor of special electric, I think that this case would not even have gotten to the, to the California Supreme Court. Um, I really think that it, you know, um, you asked earlier, well, is a court and want to want to leave this question to the jury and, and shouldn't they just let the jury's verdict stand? Well, recall again, the jury never got to look at this que- this question. The jury never, never had this issue. The jury uh, was presented with a verdict form that gave it questions on uh, the standard causes of action, including for, for, for I guess, when it goes in for a product liability. But, uh, but the question of did the sophisticated intermediary defense apply was only directed to the trial court. I think that that was a factor in the, the Supreme Court coming down the way it did. I absolutely do. Staying on fact-intensive inquiries, you hinted at this as well. If a defendant is required to show actual and reasonable reliance for something that happened 30 or 40 years in the past, that seems like it's going to present some potential logistic difficulties for defendants in the future. Uh, is that fair to say? Well, that's a, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's absolutely right. Um, but that's, you know, that is, that's a problem with latent disease cases for any number of issues. I think it's, it's particularly uh, difficult, difficult on this, but, um, you know, frankly, both, both plaintiffs and defendants have, have hurdles in trying to reconstruct what happened 40 or 50 years ago. Sure. Now, touching on the, the concurrence, the partial concurrence and the partial dissent of the Chief Justice and Justice Chin, they suggest a bit of a different approach, and that which seems to demand even more of companies like Special Electric, to wit, a bright line rule of requiring, in situations like this, an express warning from the supplier to the intermediary, no matter whether that intermediary is arguably sophisticated. Uh, what do you make of that approach? It does seem like it would be easier to apply, or at least easier for courts to analyze. Well, that's true, but as I think the majority opinion recognized, that's inconsistent with it with other uh, prior precedent of the court and some other sound principles. One is. If I sell something to, it's the obvious danger rule. I don't have a duty to warn you if I sell you a knife that knives are sharp. Everybody knows knives are sharp. Um, why, how and why should that change? Because now you're going to sell the knife to somebody else. Now I have to figure out a way to warn that other person? That doesn't seem right. Um, and it's also inconsistent with the sophisticated user uh, doctrine that the court uh, adopted just a few years ago in Johnson versus American Standard, which also has a new or should have known test so that you don't have to prove that the purchaser actually knew or that the ultimate user actually knew if they're in a class of people who should be expected to know. Um, and 
uh, that would seem to me to apply equally well in a case where you're talking about something that's going to end up going down to an end user as when you're selling it directly to the end user. Now, the dissenting justices said something else I thought was interesting, and that was that the court should not have decided uh, a different question, which it, it decided, and that was that related to the possibility of raw suppliers, co companies very early on in the, uh, the chain, being able to warn the end users of products. I think the Chief Justice of Justice Chin mentioned that technological advances could potentially make it possible so that a company like Special Electric could keep track of all the places where its products were disseminated and be able to warn end users like William Webb. Do you think they overstate the capacity of modern technology with that point? Well, I think worse, they're applying a, an internet lens to a princess phone era. <laughs> um, you know, whatever you may be able to do with the internet and big data now, Special Electric couldn't do it in the 1970s. Um, and I don't know how, mu how much could be done. It's interesting, the, uh, the concurring opinion said, took, took, uh, took issue with the majority opinion, which had said, well, you know, it's, you, it, people like uh, special electric's position are not going to be in a position to know end users. How are they going to ever find that out? And the concurring opinion said, well, where's the evidence of that in this record? We then, then moves on to this, uh, th this notion that I guess you can get on the Internet and find out uh, who the customers of your customers are and, and look them up and send them warnings. Um, I think that w would that be a something that I might recommend to a client who is a supplier of dangerous materials? Yes, investigating who the end users are and trying to get a warning to them it would be something that would help reduce your liability. But remember, the sophisticated intermediary doctrine is there to bar the need to get all the way to the end users. Right. Um, you aren't supposed to, to, to need to do that. That's sort of the point of the defense. <clears throat> on the other hand, if you can't rely on that aspect of the defense, then, uh, then an actual warning it certainly puts you in a better position than no warning. Sure. So th this was an affirmance of the, the Court of Appeal opinion, and that Court of Appeal opinion was divided. There was one justice that sided on the other side of this question. Were you surprised that not one of the justices sided on the other side of this question in the California Supreme Court? I... I guess not entirely uh, for two reasons. One, because uh, the Supreme Court does try to get to unanimous decisions more often. Um, and the other reason is I go I, I back to the procedural posture of this case, um, that it came on a motion for JNOV, that the issues were not uh presented to the jury. Um, I think that that if those things were different in a different case, I'm not sure that we'd have the, uh, the, the exact same result as we had here. Okay. Tell me, if you would, about the practical effect this ruling will have on large companies or companies such as Special Electric and attorneys that will be in the position to defend them. <laughs> Uh, I was laughing because you went from large companies to companies <laughs> like Special Electric, which, right, is, which, is, entirely, which is entirely <laughs> right. You know, which is, which is entirely right. Um, I, I, I was at the oral argument on this case, and, and I heard a question from a justice saying, "Well, what do you mean you can't just ask your purchaser 
what, what kind of warnings are giving? Can't your legal department just call up their legal department? And I'm thinking about these, this, these two people somewhere in Wisconsin. I know they don't have a legal department. That's not what, that's not what they do. Um, but what, what are some things that you could advise a supplier of material that might be hazardous? One, provide warnings to the purchaser every time. Two, you could include in the sale documents that the seller is relying on the purchaser to provide warnings. Okay, so it's actually out there and it's expressed and you're going to have a document that presumably you'll have 40 years from now when, 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 when you get sued again. Sure. Uh, three, you could periodically ask the purchaser whether they've been issuing warnings. Ask for proof. Four, you could make particular in, particularized inquiries about the purchaser's knowledge of the risks. You could ask the purchaser. You could ask somebody else. Go look and investigate through some third source. Um, and the, the fifth thing you could do, which we touched on, is you could uh, also try to look for information about who the end users are and try to get uh, appropriate warnings out to them. Again, that doesn't really, uh, a lot, it's not so much the sophisticated intermediary defense because that's there to try to excuse your duty to warn end users, but it's a recognition of the limitations of the sophisticated intermediary defense, particularly after this decision. Uh, what do you see as the future for this type of tort liability and for the doctrine of the sophisticated interme intermediary defense? Well, I think that there will likely be more cases uh, exploring the limits, uh, sort of pushing the bounds of, of, this, of this defense. Just as there were uh, after the sophisticated user decision, Johnson versus American Standard came down, a number of cases uh, that sort of plumbed how, how far that went. Uh, one difference here is that the sophisticated user decision actually uh, found in favor of the defense, thereby applying, uh, applying uh, it in that case. And here, I adopted a defense but didn't apply it, so there's a, 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 a perhaps a little less room to move, but uh, there will definitely be more cases uh, addressing this. Okay, then we'll leave it there and look forward to those developments. Mr. Don Willenberg from Gordon & Reese, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. One more time, that was Don Willenberg of Gordon & Reese. Let's hear now from Glenn Danis and Ryan Wu on the case of Lafitte versus Robert Half International and the percentage-based recovery plaintiff attorneys in common fund class actions. We're joined now by Glenn Danis and Ryan Wu. Mr. Danis is a partner with Capstone Law APC, and Mr. Wu is a senior counsel there. The two helped author a amicus brief, in this case, the Lafitte versus Robert Half International. Mr. Danis works principally on the firm's appeals and has argued before the California Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Mr. Wu has a lot of experience handling the firm's complex motion work and in seeking settlement approvals for class action lawsuits. Gentlemen, thanks for being on the program. Thanks very much for having us. Uh, now, I like to think that uh, a fair amount of the content on this podcast uh, is of interest to attorney listeners, but this seems to have an added element, at least for plaintiff side attorneys. This case is all about how attorneys can get paid and how, how much they can get paid, right? That's correct. Okay. 
So then let's go ahead and jump right in. We can walk a bit through the underlying action here. And so I understand this was an employment law case brought several years ago by uh, a class of plaintiffs against Robert Half International, a staffing agency. And litigation proceeds for, I believe, a few years, or maybe several years, and then eventually a settlement is reached. Could, could you tell me a bit about that settlement? Uh, sure. This stemmed from several different actions that were filed and litigated for quite a long time. And uh, ultimately, a settlement uh, offer was accepted for $19 million, roughly, uh, as an all-inclusive settlement, setting up a uh, fund that would be paid out entirely uh, to the class and to plaintiff's counsel. And in the settlement agreement, uh, plaintiff's counsel were able to obtain uh, an agreement for you know, up to $6.3 million for the counsel, which included three firms, primarily one firm, but the other, the other firms were also included, and an agreement from Robert Half not to oppose an application for up to that amount. Anyone that has some, some basic arithmetic competence will, will note that $6.3 is about exactly one-third of the, the $19 million. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. I mean, the, the substantive causes of action were, were basically, these were pretty standard wage and hour causes of action, mainly misclassification. And in many ways, this was very similar to a lot of the work that we do at our firm and sort of to uh, California wage and hour practice in general. It was a, you know, up to a third of the, what's referred to as the gross settlement fund was to be allocated for fees, and Robert Half agreed not to challenge it up to that amount. And I understand the trial court approved the attorney's fees of, of that amount, right? Yes, that's correct. And actually, the trial court, I think, was unusually careful in the way that it scrutinized the, the request in the settlement because there was a hearing, and then the trial court asked for a number of uh, further issues to be briefed, including the range of possible outcomes in counsel's view, reasons why a, a multiplier on any sort of lodestar or the amount of time and effort that counsel put into the case would have been, uh, would have been appropriate, and several other issues. So the, uh, the trial court was, was quite thorough in the way that it analyzed the, uh, the fee request and the settlement itself and ultimately overruled the objection um, from uh, Mr. Schoenbrunn's client and uh, granted approval of the settlement and the fee award. And it was, it's that objection then that became the centerpiece of this litigation now, the case that was just ruled on by the California Supreme Court, right? That class member bringing a suit about the, the settlement approval? Yes, that's right. It, it was that that objector, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Schumbrun's client, um, made uh, a number of arguments, quite a few of them, to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal entertained uh, a good number of them, and then that set of uh, arguments was kind of whittled down um, to a much more narrow question that was taken up by the California Supreme Court and uh, and just recently decided. What uh, precisely was that question? So, you know, there, there were, I mean, for, for those of us who really get deep into these issues, there were actually, the Court of Appeal uh, opinion was actually in some ways even more interesting because it dealt with some issues that we had not seen dealt with by California law, um, including sort of the timing of uh, an objection to an attorney fee award and uh, the propriety of a, what's called the clear sailing provision. But ultimately, the, the California Supreme Court took up the issue of whether when you have a common fund settlement or a settlement that creates a common fund, such as this one, 
whether it's appropriate to uh, issue a fee award as a percentage of that of that uh, common fund, and uh, a subsidiary question being whether it's appropriate to cross-check that against the Lodestar, what's referred to as the Lodestar multiplier uh, method, which is the competing method that the objector was claiming really should be the only one applied. Uh, but the, the question taken up was whether it's appropriate to do the percentage of the fund cross-checked by the Lodestar multiplier. Now, I believe there was some California Supreme Court precedent that the objector was citing as supportive of his view that a percentage um, fee was not permitted in, in a common fund class action like this. Do I have that correct? What, uh, what case was that? I believe it was Serrano versus, versus Priest from a few decades ago. Yeah, Serrano versus Priest from 1977. And that was a case involving um, school financing and whether or not um, a method of doing that was constitutional or not. So it was a, sort of a private attorney general case. Um, and in that case, uh, there's a footnote that says that the, uh, the starting point of fee calculation is the lodestar method. And so that language is used a lot in fee applications, and um, Schoenbrunn seized on it, or you know, his client seized on it, to say that that's the exclusive method for calculating fees uh, under California law. And therefore, the appellate court and the trial court, which use the percentage method, uh, erred and required reversal. We've mentioned him a few times now, the objector's counsel, Mr. Lawrence Schoenbrunn. I understand that he's the executive director of a, an organization called Class Action Watch, and I think he's been fighting this particular fight against certain types of recoveries by plaintiff's attorneys and class actions for a rather long time. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we don't deal with him directly. This is sort of the first time we've had interaction with him, but uh, my understanding is that he's uh, uh, an activist. In fact, um, I think another case where he's representing an objector uh, was recently granted a uh, review by the California Supreme Court called Hernandez versus Mueller Restoration Hardware. So that's about the standing of objectors to appeal. From what we understand, he's definitely a class action um, activist seeking to sort of reform the laws he sees it to be more fair to class action, uh, absent class members. I'm obviously un unsuccessful in his attempt here. One thing that struck me a bit as interesting in this ruling is you know, clearly the fact that the objector here is relying on this Toronto versus Priest case from 1977 means that there's been a question that's been open since then as to whether or not, in fact, a percentage recovery from a common fund case is, is permissible. That seems like a long time to go without there being a, a final word on that question. How is it that uh, that's remained an open question for so long, or at least open enough that the California Supreme Court had to take it up in this case? Yeah, it's, it's sort of a matter of uh, the, the strange history of class action jurisprudence. I mean, the fact is that from the, the reform of the, uh, the federal rules of civil procedure in 1966 that really created the modern class action uh, until the early 70s, it was really a percentage of the fund method was what was used to calculate attorney's fees in class actions. Mostly those were quite fair, but in some instances it yielded um, results that at least to those who don't practice in this area or to non-lawyers seemed really uh, wildly uh, enriching to the attorneys and created a perception that really, you know, that class action lawyers were being overpaid or weren't doing a sufficient amount of work. So in the early 70s, uh, I believe it was around 1973 with a Third Circuit case, 
there was a huge push towards the Lodestar method. And really, for the rest of the 70s and into the, into the mid-80s, you know, the Lodestar method was used in even in common fund cases, the idea being that it created some objectivity, it created uh, the appearance, I think, of really tying uh, the lawyer's work to the way that they are paid and not creating these few but highly publicized windfalls that attracted uh, a lot of negative attention and erode the prestige of the bar. So Serrano and the, and the California Supreme Court in Lafitte was quite clear about the fact that Serrano was really a product of these of these sort of larger trends. And, you know, Serrano happened to fall right within this period of time where the Lodestar method was what was being used. After 1985 and the Third Circuit's task force uh, gave its recommendations, most courts, federal and state, have really been using what you know, it's a bit of a misnomer referring to it as a blended method, but really the, you know, when you have a, a common fund using the percentage method with a lodestar multiplier cross-check. And that really, in practice, has been what the federal courts have been doing and what the state courts have been doing. And, you know, even in the last years since Serrano, um, you know, the California courts have been applying, you know, percentage of the fund method with a lodestar cross-check. There were a couple of outlier cases where there was some language that, that Mr. Schoenbrunn seized upon that made it seem as if that that might not be the case or that the uh, percentage method might still be in disrepute. Those cases are quite easily explained by the fact that those, those didn't involve real common funds. Those involved really, I think, constructive common funds or, or situations where uh, it was a claims-made settlement, the, the total payout was unknown, and there was not really a fund from which the attorney's fees could be awarded. So it was a bit of an illusion that it actually lasted this long, but it is true that the California Supreme Court had not fully weighed in on this precise issue in this manner. Right. I mean, as a matter of practice, and, you know, most of these class actions in state courts are in the complex court division in the state courts, and they uniformly use the percentage method when requested. So for practitioners, this is not really an issue. In fact, I think when Lafitte was taken up, there was a bit of, uh, of a surprise from the commentators that, you know, that this was still an open issue. But, you know, now with Lafitte, we thankfully closed the door on any uh, attempt by objectors to sort of seize on dicta to deny attorneys their fees. Can we just dig in a little bit further into exactly what that Lodestar method is? At base, it sounds like it's an attempt to um, to ground an attorney's fee based upon the, the number of hours an attorney worked multiplied by, by some reasonable rate. But as, as you've hinted, at, in this case, there's ways that the hour times rate method can be enhanced or, or multiplied based on different different factors, correct? Like the, the risk an attorney might not recover anything in, in a case or um, the novelty that a particular case might entail. That's right. I mean, you know, it, it is fairly straightforward, and there is some wiggle room, I think, as you noted in the, in the multiplier. I mean, basically, it's the number of hours reasonably spent, and of course, that sometimes in a contested motion can be subject to, uh, to some disagreement, what's reasonable, times the attorney's reasonable rate, and again, rates can be something that in, in an adversarial proceeding there can be some disagreement about, and then with the, uh, afterwards, the application of either a positive or a negative multiplier, which is 
supposed to account for uh, the type of results reached, also, you know, for types of contingency, you know, multiple levels of contingency, novelty of the issues, etc. But, you know, I think one of the points that was interesting that the California Supreme Court made was that the objectivity really, to some extent, has been overstated. While there is some objectivity to it, perhaps that might be more to non-lawyers. You know, lawyers understand that even these inputs into the Lodestar method can be very fraught. But that is essentially what it is. The hours times the rates, you know, with either a positive, negative, or no multiplier. I thought that sort of as preface, and we've hinted on, on the result here. Alrighty, could you walk me through the opinion here? What did the court have to say about whether Serrano prevented uh, percentage recovery? Well, I mean, the court, you know, the court was pretty clear about a couple things. You know, one of them was that Serrano does not prevent the application of the percentage method of calculating attorney's fees where there's a true common fund. That was a unanimous holding of this decision, and really it couldn't be much clearer. So Serrano does not prevent that. And Serrano was a case involving fee shifting, and it was a private attorney general doctrine case under 1021 of the CCP, and essentially that that's not going to be a, a hindrance here. There are other upshots of the opinion, but as far as whether Serrano prevents that, no, that was pretty clear. And affirmed the lower courts in full. Well, Lafitte and his counsel are able to get the $6.3 million in fees that they requested. Uh, one portion of the majority opinion that I thought was a bit interesting, I might like to tease out slightly, is the court saying that the two different methods of attorney fee calculation, the percentage method and the lodestar method, contrast in their, their primary foci or focuses, um, with one focusing on the actual work completed, the hours put in, and one seemingly more concerned with the ultimate results achieved. Um, could you walk me through a bit of the contrast this, the court is describing and perhaps um, what some of the benefits or drawbacks are to those different um, foci? I would say that, you know, the court correctly said that, that the focus of the uh, percentage method is really on the result obtained and the, and the focus of the Lodestar method is really on the, the effort put in. Um, and, you know, there are, as I just said a minute ago, you know, there is in, within the multiplier, uh, on the Lodestar multiplier, there is built in some, some ability to consider, you know, the results. Essentially, those are the two different focuses of the two methods, uh, one being results and one being kind of the, the effort put into it. At the same time, it seems odd that there's, I mean, maybe there isn't really so much of a tension there. I, you know, it seems like Mr. Schoenbrunn's contention is that attorneys should get paid for the work that they've done, the hours they've completed, a reasonable rate for the, the work they've done. But on the other hand, it, it seems like people will hire attorneys to, to pursue their cause with the hopes that they'll win the case. I, I can't imagine a person would hire an attorney and then be upset that the attorney won the case too quickly and then, you know, want a certain amount of his feedback. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think, I think you're right. I mean, you know, I don't think there's a client anywhere who really cares at all about how much effort is put into a case. What clients care about are results. Our job at our firm, you know, and I would imagine for almost all rational plaintiff's lawyers is to deliver the best results possible for the class and to do it sort of as quickly and efficiently as possible. So, you know, the idea that the client ever cares about the, the effort put in, I think, is a bit strange. I almost see it as being a tension between Schoenbrunn and his ilk really representing sort of an ideological strand of the public who are 
may be concerned about outlier cases where there might be a windfall. I mean, I don't know if my colleague disagrees with me, but that, that seems to be sort of what's really going on here. It's sort of this one very specific element, perhaps, of kind of public opinion that's really in tension with what the clients want. Because, as you said, what the clients want is the best result possible as quickly as possible, and that's really all they care about. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the cases that support the percentage method, they, they, they talk about this idea that the incentives of the council are aligned with the class members. You know, the higher the recovery, the more in fees. So, so class council has the incentive to get the highest recovery possible for class members. Now, if you're sort of awarding fees solely on the, on the Lodestar method, there's more of an incentive, not to say that all plaintiff lawyers do this, but you create this incentive for attorneys to sort of churn the file, not deliver results as quickly as they, they might. So that's sort of a problem, you know, with the Lodestar method. On the other hand, I, I do want to sort of clarify that the Lodestar method sometimes is very, very good in certain kinds of cases. If, if you have a discrimination suit where maybe the amount at stake isn't a whole lot discrimination suit, you get $40,000 for a client, but you spent $500,000 doing it because the employer fought you tooth and nail. In that case, you know, you would apply to the court for, you know, your fees under the Lodestar method, and your client shouldn't be deprived of his or her attorney getting their fees for the work done. If you don't do that, then people won't take on these cases, take on, you know, discrimination cases, other cases where there's a small amount in recovery. So the Lodestar method works really well in certain kinds of cases. In sort of class action cases where there's sort of a gigantic recovery, typically it, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, and, and just, you know, one additional thing, to play devil's advocate, there is an argument that the Lodestar method creates an incentive for marginal increases over time. And I know that, you know, the opinion talked a little bit about that, and I, I think that maybe that's sort of the other side of the coin to the, to the unfortunate incentive to turn the file and really just kind of extend the case. But, you know, there is an argument that the Lodestar method does create that, that other incentive, which is good, of, you know, not incentivizing people to settle too quickly and to keep the value of their time high. But, you know, I think the court ended up coming out saying that that is really just a, a lesser consideration to some extent, that the amount that will be uh, realized that the margins like that uh, in a common fund case really can't be what, what drives our concerns. You know, I mean, like what Ryan was just saying a minute ago, the Lodestar method of calculating fees seems to be great for fee-shifting cases, for cases that, that don't realize a large pot of money for a large group of people uh, in order to continue to incentivize publicly beneficial litigation. But it does not seem to really be the great primary way to award uh, fees under class actions that, that do get a pot of money. And, and of course, this, this settlement in Lafitte was kind of a, a, you know, an excellent recovery in a lot of different ways because there was no reversion and it was going to be paid out entirely. And, you know, there, was, there were no contingencies. It was just, you know, a straight $19 million common fund that was obtained for the class, and it seems really to make much more sense for the funds to come directly out of that. Maybe the benefits and drawbacks of these two methods notwithstanding, aren't there possible circumstances where this sort of agree- agreement would be determined not by, you know, a court weighing the pros and cons of each, but just at the beginning of representation by the attorney and the client? It seems like, in this case, I, I, 
as it seems that the uh, the one third award was part of the the settlement, but you know, and that's sort of subsequently brought on this litigation. But couldn't the parties have agreed at the, the very outset to say, okay, this is going to be a percentage recovery, and then we wouldn't have had to to have this case go through all the courts? Well, you know, I think I think you know, class action attorneys and their clients do have fee agreements, but the the problem here is that absent class members are also involved. So even if the client says, okay, uh, one third of my recovery can be used as attorney's fees, you know, we still have the problem of absent class members. So that's where the court, as the guardian of the absent class members, come in to sort of determine whether or not the negotiated fees are reasonable. Whether that can be done at the outset of the case, it's difficult because one thing is that plaintiffs and defendants negotiate the settlement. So, you know, you're asking the defendant to sort of set a fee award at the outset of the case. That's not easy to do. I mean, I think I think there are certain kinds of actions where where that's done: securities litigation, uh, medical malpractice, uh, pharmaceutical suits, where there's sort of institutional clients that are negotiating. Uh, with the plaintiffs, or there is sort of bidding among different class counsel. That's where you see the fees being set at the outset of the case. In sort of these wage and hour cases where the recovery is, you know, between one and ten million typically, and the fees are between, you know, three hundred thousand and three or four million typically, you don't really see that. So, um, you know, there, there are no institutional clients. The defendants aren't willing to sort of bargain with you at the beginning of the case. That's sort of where the problem lies. I mean, I think you can potentially sort of set some sort of range, you know, you can maybe, you know, in a, in a subsequent case, the court can, can sort of say, well, look, in this type of case, a wage and hour case, where the recovery is between 1 million, 5 million, the percentage should be, say, 30% with an adjustment upward or downward, depending on the circumstances of the case. That's something that the, the court can try to do. I mean, there's already, you know, in the Ninth Circuit, a benchmark of 25%, where, you know, in general, the presumption is that a class action attorney is awarded 25% unless there are circumstances that sort of allow the court to adjust it upward or downward. So that's sort of one way we can go about that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think that, you know, the way to address the concern that I know Justice Liu brings up in his concurrence about having an ex-ante uh, agreement early on in the case like Ryan was just saying, I think that that might work in a securities case that's much less likely to work in a consumer case or a wage and hour suit. But the solution to that might be the court adopting, let's say, a 33% benchmark uh, or certainly a 33% benchmark with a perhaps a sliding scale like the Ninth Circuit has done where in mega fund cases the percentage goes down to prevent windfalls and to, you know, like we're seeing in the Volkswagen case right now, for instance, where you know, I know that the fee application is only seeking, you know, something like 5% or some much smaller percentage than would normally apply in the Ninth Circuit where they, uh, I believe the Ninth Circuit follows the 25% benchmark usually. So, yeah, I, I, I do think, I think adopting a benchmark or a presumptive benchmark like 33% in state court would be a very good way to effectively have that ex-ante negotiation in, in many of these cases without having to have the transaction costs of uh, slogging down the litigation to try and perhaps, I mean, I don't even know as a practical matter how one would have, you know, spoken to an objector uh, early on in the case like this to have made sure that, you know, he or she was on board with it. 
so I think that that might be the way to go about that. Maybe we could flesh out Justice Liu's concurrence just a bit more. As he said, he wrote separately, but he voted with the majority on the result here. Um, is that his principle concern? He took the opportunity to voice sort of a, a few different concerns about the way the attorney's fees are awarded in cases like this and noted that sometimes windfalls, as you say, could erode public trust in the judicial system. Um, do you share any of the concerns that he has with, with the practice of attorney fee awards in, in, in these types of cases? And do you think there is some room for improvement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we certainly share those concerns. You know, we very much want there to be transparency and the public's trust to be conferred on the bench and the bar uh, in these types of cases. And for there certainly not to be the type of view or the, the perspective that seems to have been in the late 60s and early 70s, yeah, we, we definitely do share that concern. And I think that where, you know, you can have the early discussion uh, to mimic the market or to emulate what the marketplace would be for these legal services uh, early on in the case, that certainly is, is a good thing. But, you know, I just think that in... Like Ryan was saying, you know, in the typical smaller wage and hour action where maybe there are half a million dollar worth of fees and maybe two million dollars worth of damages at issue, it, it just seems that that's much less likely to happen and perhaps not a sophisticated class rep that might be much less likely to happen than, say, in the, the securities context. Uh, it just might be much tougher as a practical matter to get that negotiation actually to happen. You know, one of the other things that he pointed out that we, I, I think that we, we do think is a great idea is in, you know, megafund cases to have that sort of guardian of the class. You know, that idea is one that I think makes a lot of sense, again, in the much bigger cases, like the Volkswagen case or the unintended acceleration Toyota case or, or some of these sort of multi-billion dollar cases, but that probably wouldn't make a lot of sense in, in a run-of-the-mill consumer or wage and hour action. I think that idea is great, um, except the expenses of paying for some, something like that would come out of the fund. So the class members, each paying a share of his or her recovery to, to someone who's, who's sort of monitoring the fees, pouring over billing. So I think in a, in a settlement of over you know, $20 million, $30 million, that, that would be economical. In a smaller settlement, that probably wouldn't be. Maybe just one last one, if you had to pick out a couple, what would you say the, the most significant impacts of this ruling are for, for plaintiff side class action attorneys? Is it just the, the assurance now that this method of obtaining attorney's fees has gotten its imprimatur of the, the California Supreme Court? Well, I'll throw out a couple of things that struck me, and I'm sure Ryan's got a couple of others. Not not to run over the same territory again, but one thing that's you know that that we definitely think was was a valuable upshot of the opinion was the fact that it reiterated that there's no need for uh, voluminous uh, billing records to be submitted in connection with fee requests, which really is one of the things that that wastes judicial resources. You know, in this case. The trial court asked for an additional declaration from uh, counsel detailing the work, and of course the trial counsel is in the position to know what work was done in its courtroom. So this point about, you know, there's not a real reason to require billing records, which was a, something that, that Mr. Schoenbrunn was, was seeking to have imposed as a bright-line rule, which I, I think would have just, you know, immeasurably slowed down litigation and created a huge uh, amount of extra costs that ultimately are borne by the class. So 
that was one uh, big upshot. And the other is about the multiplier, you know, um, really endorsing a either 2.03 or 2.13 multiplier in a case that is, you know, a good, solid settlement in the wage and hour uh, context is helpful because, frankly, there are courts, I think, that, that are loath to apply the multiplier sometimes thinking that it's some sort of a gift. But as the opinion um, makes clear, if a uh, plaintiff's counsel is not given any multiplier, it really is not at all compensating for some of the costs that were taken on. And I, I think it emphasized that the, the, the lodestar multiplier cross-check is, is just that. It's a cross-check. It's not um, meant to be sort of a second method of calculating fees. It's meant to sort of check against uh, a potential windfall. So the, the court said, you know, if there are no extraordinary multipliers, generally you shouldn't reduce counsel's fees based on the lodestar cross-check. So I, I thought that was important. I think the other point is that a lot of class actions go to the district courts, uh, the federal district courts, because of the Class Action Fairness Act. And when it comes to settlements, a lot of district courts apply the, the 25% benchmark. In fact, when it's sitting in diversity, it has to apply California law. So I think Lafitte, you know, sort of clarified what California law is. California law doesn't have a 25% benchmark. The district court, you know, has broad discretion to sort of determine what uh, percentage is reasonable, but it, it shouldn't sort of, you know, strictly apply a benchmark the way that some district courts have done. So I think, I think that might, might be uh, its biggest impact going forward. Certainly sounds like an impactful ruling with Feed First Robert Half International. Thanks, gentlemen, very much for being on the podcast to talk about it. Mr. Ryan Wu and Glenn Danis from Capstone Law APC. Thanks very much for having us. It's been a pleasure. And with that, our special Kala edition of the Weekly Appellate Report is complete. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'd like to take this opportunity to tender sincere gratitude to all the guests that appeared, Mr. Rex Heinke, Don Willenberg, Glenn Danis, and Ryan Wu. Once again, as mentioned at the top, new episodes of the Weekly Appellate Report issue each Friday and concern, like this one, a wide range of important appellate issues. I hope you'll consider tuning in to those and also finding the CLE credit that awaits you on our website. There, there should be a short true-false test pertaining to this podcast. Find that, and a CLE credit will be yours. Once again, I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you again. Enjoy your weekend in Vegas. Mm-hmm.